Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. Okay, everybody, here we are. Many, many of us tonight. This is awesome. What an amazing turnout. Thank you, guys. Um, tonight we have Joel Wayne up first. That guy right there. He's going to be up here in a minute. Then that guy over there, Mr. Matthew R.K. Haynes, will be up after our break. So the way this will work tonight, I'll do a few announcements, thanks, et ceteras, and then Joel will get up here and read his stuff and uh, answer some questions. If you have any questions during the course of the reading, jot them down or mentally mark them in your brain, and we'll uh, maybe have like 10 or 15 minutes of questions, and then we'll take a break of about 15-ish so you guys can get drinks, use the restroom, get food. Uh, the Modern does have a special tonight, and thank you, Modern, for hosting us. Yay, Modern. Uh, looks like it's a wild mushroom and goat cheese empanada, mac and cheese, cherry cobbler. A delicious, complete meal for $19. So I know Remy and those guys are making amazing drinks inside, too, so you've got that. I'll get my glasses on. So I can speak to the thank yous first. The modern, like I said, of course, Polly is awesome here. Polly, wherever she is. Thank you so much. And Michael for actually having this idea in the first place last summer. Um, and we made it happen. And look at this. And then, of course, Remy inside and Elizabeth, owner of the modern, who hosts us. So once again, those guys. And then Rediscovered Books right there, Katie. We're getting a few raindrops. This is perfect. It'll cool us down as a touch. Um, and on the table over there, we do have Matthew R.K. Haynes' new novel, Friday, as well as Mitch Whelan, who we'll be reading next month. We have his novel, Willie Slater's Lane and God's Dogs. Those are two different novels. And then, who's the other guy again, Katie? Okay, that guy, who is highly recommended. So. Um, and by the way, they're doing an amazing thing down at Rediscovered Books, expanding, basically almost getting twice as much room, which in this day and age for an indie bookstore, that's remarkable. So that's just, I mean, you guys are book buyers and book readers, and so you guys are actually making that happen. So, and Radio Boise, Wendy Fox over there, is actually recording all of this, and they put it up on their website as a podcast, which is remarkable as well. Um, oh, we, I, want, I don't think Brit's here which makes me sort of sad because we're totally going to miss Britt Udison, who is the still reigning executive director at the, uh, at the cabin. And the cabin's been an amazing, obviously, entity in Boise for a long time. <clears throat> we have a 20-year party happening at the beginning of August. But Britt is taking a new job in Minneapolis, as many of you guys know. And it's kind of sad, but it's also really hopeful for her. <laughs> We want to rein her back in if we can. But she's been amazing. And um, if she was here, I'd raise a toast. But we'll do that at another time. But the cabin's 20th anniversary party will be happening, like I said, I think August 6th. But you can go to their website, um, thecabinidaho.org, I believe. So you have that. And Story Ford is a thing that's happened with, oh, you know, is a part of Tree Fort. And we've hosted a couple of events down here that are Story Fort events. We will in the future, too. And we met up with the Tree Fort folks this year, just a week, week and a half ago. And it's a full-on go-ahead for next year. We're getting more funding, more sponsorships. So that's going to be a huge thing, too. So look for more news on that. Um, and then 
As far as the 39 Rooms, which is a film festival they do here at the Modern, um, if you stay at the Modern, you can actually go to Channel 39 and watch a series of short films, um, all independently done. And I'm not sure if they're all short shorts, but uh, there are 39 of them, I believe. So um, what they have going at Ming Studio on the 30th, 31st, and the 1st, so 30th and 31st of uh, July and the 1st of August is in uh, alignment with Wahaldi. We have Basque films going on down there. It's a free event those nights at 9 p.m. And uh, Michael wanted me to bring that up. So if you guys can make it down to Ming Studio, which is all right by Bricolage down there on 6th. Um, and it's that front, one of those two. Anyway, so that's going on. But uh, I don't want to go on too long without just bringing up our man, Joel Wayne, who hails from Pendleton, Oregon, I believe, correct? Yes. Bring it on. Okay, so Joel Wayne is a writer living in Boise, Idaho. His articles, fiction, nonfiction, and other works have appeared in Adpulp, Apt, Glassworks, The Moth, which is the story he's reading tonight, uh, Salon, Story Story Night, and the Sun Valley Film Festival. He also recently received the 2015 Lamar York Prize for Fiction from the Chattahoochee Review. He occasionally teaches at the, at the uh, cabin, and you can find more information about this man at joelwayne.com. So, here's our man, Joel Wayne. This feels uh, a little surreal, I feel like, because um, uh, none of you know my work at all, <laughs> so I don't know why you would be here to, <laughs> to hear any of this. Well, there's like a couple people in, uh, in the far back who didn't show up early enough to get a, a place. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for everybody for coming out and, and to The Modern and, and Christian and, and Radio Boise for putting to this together it's uh, fantastic so and I was very honored to be asked um, so this is a, a, a piece that was just published recently uh, as Christian said um, uh, out of a, a public publication called the moth um, that's out of Ireland it's not the moth out of Chicago if you know that one um, I think when I first submitted to him I thought it was and maybe they rely on that, honestly, I don't know, because, because they, they look fantastic, so you could, get, you could absolutely get um, uh, mistaken for that. Uh, anyway, I, I just really quickly, I guess, to set it up, um, um, it's a story in letters. It's called Leaving Your Baby Out in the Rain. Um, it's a story in letters. It's set in the, uh, in the early 60s. Um, I was reading it. Um, uh, about a week ago to kind of time it out and I feel like I have to apologize in advance because um, of the tone of it to a certain degree and I only say because um, I was reading it and I was thinking this is li exactly like what I thought a short story should sound like when I was a kid so this is like an ode to that and I don't mean I guess I don't mean that it's, I hope I hope it's not bad but um, it has this tone to it that I feel like that's what I that's what I thought of when I read anything or or, or watched um, Anne of Green Gables or something like that. So, um, so hopefully it's not a big turnoff. 
Um, oh, and I should also mention too, it is, uh, it's a one-way uh, uh, story in letters, so it's only written um, from uh, one person to another, no replies that we, that we read. So don't feel like you're crazy. So this is called Leaving Your Baby Out in the Rain. September 15th, 1963. Winnie. To be in the habit of something, you have to have done it more than twice. Saying you've made a routine of running boys' hearts through a blender is unwarranted. Also, please pick a different image. You only have a pair of experiences. The first was Theo, I remember, but that was a minor affair. He was more concerned with dodging the two years he'd otherwise spend on a mission for his church. I think you believed, and who could blame you, he'd benefit from the company of a girl who read something besides G.K. Chesterton. Maybe you thought you could lure him away from the church. But his aimlessness, alas, wasn't so easily solved. You must have heard he did go on a mission for the church, but did you also know he was booted from the program after getting spotted drinking with the locals? What a boob, spumbling through his first adult sin. He skulked back to Maine and put himself in the family way with a girl he met at a hojo. In any case, these don't sound like the actions of a boy trying to win somebody back, i.e. you. The second boy I still don't know much about. You held them more tightly and I couldn't pry the details from your knobby little hands. Do you remember standing me up when I invited the two of you over last summer? Your own aunt, Winnie. I, eat, I had even whipped up a batch of Tom and Jerry batter to get the pair of you sauced, only enough to, to answer some embarrassing questions. When you didn't show, I spent the evening lying in my bed in a nearly new dress, licking dollops of sticky sweet batter and reading a book that went on and on. I woke to find my arm glued to the bedspread, the cat trying to free me. I'm only one quarter actually hurt. I'll blindly suppose you met him through your last volunteer position, but it seems only fair for you to fill in the other who's and what's. How did it start and why did it end? Is he married? Has he turned you terribly wicked? I don't hear, if I don't hear otherwise from you, I'll continue assuming the worst. All the best for now, Colette. That's me reading a woman, in case you didn't pick that up by now. October 8th, 1963. Winnie, in my defense, colon, if you can't, you can't condemn my radio silence after your last note. On Friday, I was stuck at Arrow Schickelgruber's annual autumn festival, exchanging inanities with the library donors. I was stumbling through rounds of lawn darts and badminton, and the only tonic for my introversion had quite a bit of gin mixed into it. I weaved home on my bicycle in a sour mood and found your letter, which didn't soothe me. My first take, he sounds too old for you. If he is, as you said, depressed over the impending loss of his hearing, it might be time to return his class ring. That reads coldly, I'll bet, but trust me when I say the crippled neither need nor desire our sympathy. In fact, it's our feminine duty to treat them as we would anyone else, to say yes and to say no emphatically as we would with, as we would with anyone lacking that irresistible limp. Secondly, I was unaware he had followed you back to university. After your last note, I naturally assumed you'd turned him loose, but now I can't help picturing that oily mallard who tailed you around the zoo for so many years ago, only to nab the other half of your sandwich when you weren't looking. There's something disconcerting or mildly pathetic or even ominous or insane about a man, juiced heart and hard of hearing, who changes his postal code in pursuit of a little company. When I tried calling you at the university to relay all this, I was so flustered I dialed your home number by rote. 
Your mother picked up and we backed ourselves into a sisterly skirmish. I'm sure you received her report. I'm embarrassed and I apologize. Secondhand, it probably sounded like I was going out of my head again. But I slept off the anger and the gin before finally deciding against calling you all together and sitting down instead to write you this note. Please, please keep me posted about everything, Winnie Love. I hope you regard me as something beyond the aunt who pokes around in your life and warns you about the potholes that twisted my ankles at your age. I'm afraid I am that person, but I'm also your greatest admirer, your most vocal champion, and your superlativist, I said it right, your superlativist friend. There is nothing hiding behind my questions and notes other than love, love, and more love for my dear Winnie. I missed an Oxford comma there that's so unlike me. Um, November 30th, 1963. Winnie, another postman delivers another apology from your favorite aunt. Here it is. A bad spirit appeared in my mind. This is gonna be on the back of this page, so I feel like I have to address it. I got the proof of this in an in, uh, in email, and she said, does everything look all right? And, and that just happened to be on the on the facing page and you always hope for like a a good work of art on the facing page and it was like yeah i'll take it that's fine <laughs> um so i totally missed some typos in there apparently which i just noticed the other day <clears throat> about a month ago i had to take a few days off from the library to shake him i could have sworn someone was talking to me winnie a man with a young and raspy voice asking have we met somewhere before you seem so familiar but every time I'd turn in the midst of shelving a book or sharpening a pencil, I was alone. I stopped doing anything on my own. After I'd stepped on her heels a 15th time, Mrs. Fuselwaite asked me to go home and lie down. I mounted a decent defense, but when I'd actually returned to the apartment and begun my sentence, I felt relieved. But it was just a few days later when a man from Texas laid out the president, and I suddenly wondered if I'd ever open the front door again, even to welcome you back for Thanksgiving. Thank you for dropping in to say hello, by the way. I'm so, I was so worried about our visit having made you depressed that I think it made me depressed. Thank you also for keeping me apprised of the affair with the ancient Texan. I'm giving you a hard time, of course, but I am curious if his suddenly finding himself in a healthier place now, mentally, is actually the symptom of a larger problem. You might ask if mania or manic depressives are hanging anywhere in his family tree. Electroshock therapy seems to be the analeptic nowadays for mental health, but I'd certainly want to know if someone walking me to the movies had been treated like a light bulb. Maybe it seems forward, but these are the type of lines you want to draw when, you, when you're considering the start of a family. A sudden vision. You're sitting there reading this and asking yourself, how did she suddenly jump to that? But there's many a girl still in school who found themselves accidentally starting a family late one night after a drive with a man in uniform who smells like he's just stepped out of the bath, after burning your tongue on a sip of whiskey from a flask under the seat, after he's taken the top down to look at the stars, after a few of his laughs that could split icebergs, after a hand on your knee. As the most sensible girl I know, you shouldn't, be care, you shouldn't care if you're called a spoil sport or bookish or prude or a priss for passing on those car rides. Am I interfering too much? All right, I promise I won't ask any more questions. Suggest any refusals refusals or offer any wisdom for at least a month. As I said, you're too smart for it and I forget myself, which I'm prone to do anyway. I love you endlessly. January 11, 1964. What a relief it was to see you over the holidays. When you ran away to school, 
school the fall before last, I tried so hard to feel only grateful, only pride and excitement. Grief, sadness, jealousy, no, don't let those darker emotions pace in the wings, Colette. But it was a struggle, my child. Your parents pulled away from the curb to drive you to the station and I faced the door to cry. For a few months, I couldn't stop replaying the afternoons we'd spend in my kitchen, baking red and blue batches of cookies, you manning the trigger of the spritz gun. Your mother used to come and watch me while I watched you, making sure I didn't let you climb in the ins inside the oven, I suppose. Do you remember any of this, Winnie? Do you miss it? Do you find yourself stopped in the middle of the sidewalk thinking about it? Do you sometimes tear up when you're waiting in the department store, the cashier reaching out to pat your hand and offer you a tissue and a mint? Does it make you feel something like grief? God, I'm sorry. I'm whack, or I'm waning when I should be waxing. I hope your Texan didn't think I was rude. For whatever reason, I missed the chapter in your letter where you said he'd be joining you over the break. I think we all selfishly hope to spend as much time with you as possible. Maybe that's not realistic now that you've grown up, and I am, as I've already confessed, selfish for expecting it. I resolve not to say another bad word about the Texan. I commend him for his service in Korea, and I only wish you had mentioned his being a veteran earlier on. Soldiers have such a big block of maladies to contend with, physical and otherwise. It's a wonder they're able to function outside a foxhole. They take to drinking or chasing after women or telling stories you're never quite sure are true. Not your Texan, I'm sure. That's a typo, too. Jeez. But soldiers, as a whole, seem to have an inner switch. When it's on, they're either giving or receiving orders, and all is well. When it's off, when they're expected to take command of themselves, they tend to fire their gun without aiming beforehand. Let me know how spring quarter is playing out. Don't take after your aunt and spend too much time at the library. And don't forget to eat. I once worked with a girl at the library, she's gone and married now, who had apparently stopped eating altogether, and she became so thin I worried a falling book might flatten her. I said this to her one day, and she said it was neither appropriate to discuss a woman's weight, nor polite to talk to someone while they were using the bathroom. <laughs> My generation is so sensitive, Winnie. It's a slog making friends through casual conversation. I've practically given it up. I wish you, I miss you, and, and I wish you all the best. Again, another typo. January 18th, 1964. Winnie. Just a quick note, hon, about a book just arrived at the library I think you'd enjoy. It's a biography of Clara Barton, who used to say was a kindred spirit. I've hardly cracked the spine myself, but I think you'd enjoy it. The other night, I gussied myself to an appropriate level and saw a play about a family renting a cabin up in the Catskills. It was a farce, I suppose, and very funny, gauging by the audience around me. But for whatever reason, I found myself hilariously sad somewhere during the second act. A nice man in my row ushered me into the foyer after my crying upset the row in front of me. Oh, no trouble for me. I've always had very good night vision, he said. I had asked if he ever felt overtaken by darkness. Apparently, I found this response incredibly poetic and leaned in to nuzzle his neck. The smell of chipped beef and cedar shavings too strong an aphrodisiac to resist. He pushed me away, obviously, and practically ran back into the theater. I bicycled home and spent some quality time in the bath feeling sorry for myself, which is why maybe she picked that picture. The place I call home has never felt less comforting or more empty, and now I'm sorry for having written you a sad note. Forgive me, please. May 9th, 1964. Greetings from Bedlam. 
I'm joking, of course, but by now you probably heard I'm taking time to open my pores at the estate, as I like to call it. The place isn't, the place isn't as fancy as you'd hope. It lets out a constant whiff of white vinegar and old shoes. I share a room with a woman who feels so overwhelmed she sometimes struggles to lift her spoon. There's a girl, Vanessa, I say, which is such a ravishing name. Just another spoonful and we'll go for a walk and flirt with the handsome lawyer in the garden who can't remember he's already married. Nothing I say motivates her. I watch her and I ache, Winnie. Now, thinking back over everything I've offered as advice regarding your Texan, I realize I may need to show you a secret chapter from my memoir, even if I'm not exactly supposed to. Bear with me. It's hard to imagine, but I used to be young, like you. In fact, when I was volunteering for the women's auxiliary at the hospital over the war, I was younger than you. 16 and skipping school without my mother, your grandmother, suspecting a thing. The position wasn't anything heroic or even taxing. Mostly I changed bed linens and helped in whatever way a 16-year-old could help with anything. I hardly ever saw the wounded, the object of my work. The rooms were emptied and waiting for new sheets and fresh blood by the time I walked through the doorway. But there was a particular day I entered the room, entered a room with a pile of warm sheets and was surprised to see a soldier sitting in a chair by the window. His left leg was sheathed in a plaster cast up to the knee, a pair of crutches leaning against the sill, and he was staring at me with a funny smile spread across his face, as if he were expecting me. You're too late, he said. The fellow who was in here died from his dirty sheets. They've already taken him to Arlington. Now don't you feel bad? It knocked me off my guard and I laughed. I sat at the corner of the bed and talked with him, though fraternization with patience, as they called it, was forbidden. His hair was blonde, and he wore it an inch or two longer than most soldiers did in those days. But it was combed like a little boy on Sunday, and it didn't bother me. He had the most remarkable nose, large but not bulbous, sharp with a small crest in the middle, very handsome. I was smitten, you can probably see. He was in his properly pressed uniform, discharged the same morning, and he looked ready to hobble back to the front. Oh, but they got me, he said, patting his leg. Whoever they is, it could have been one of our boys, for all I know. Doesn't matter now, does it, Minnie Mouse? He talked me into following him outside, where he could breathe something other than iodine and Salisbury steak. We chatted for about ten minutes and agreed on a place to meet after my shift ended. I returned to dress the beds and could hardly tell the fitted from the flats. I was so flush with anticipation, so alive from talking and the bit of attention, I stripped mattresses off clean sheets, or stripped mattresses, uh, stripped mattresses of clean sheets and stretched dirty linens across empty beds until my floor supervisor sent me home early. I'd accidentally given myself an extra hour to pace the sidewalk in front of the hardware store waiting for my soldier. We were together a week, or maybe it was only six days. Have you ever experienced something that seems to last alternately a minute and a decade? He had rented or borrowed a car, a convertible from a friend, and we breezed down the coast. Every place we pulled over, a boutique under a carved wooden sign where he held the green dress up against me and said, there she is. Crab shacks in tattered seaside towns, an ocean view restaurant with a dress code, the string of perfectly honest hotels with carefully stacked piles of soft white towels, he introduced me as his wife. We walked with arms hooked, shared a bed, knew each other's scent, his unwashed hair like burnt almonds and motor oil. We were married, I thought. But what's the half-life of any joy? At the end of our honeymoon, he dropped me off down the street from my house, 
brushed his mouth against my forehead and became a memory. My parents and sisters had already figured I was dead or kidnapped, and I remember feeling bothered by how quickly their relief turned to anger. The hospital took me back with conditions after I invented a dying relative, and the soldier dissolved into a cold back bath of mistakes I'd probably make again. I tried to find him, of course. I played Miss Marple for a few days, asked around. Then a nurse on the night shift said my soldier had returned to his wife and kids somewhere outside of Milwaukee. Was it true? Had he lied to me? Or had the nurse gotten her phone lines crossed? I was in purgatory, Winnie. I'm still unsure if I was a six-day mistress to a married man, but I sat next to a mop in a closet for half a day when I heard. Three shifts after take, talking my way back onto the job, I left my apron and didn't return. Maybe you know which direction we're headed, Winnie, although I hope you don't. I hope you're distracted by the tiny handful of respect you may still have for me. I can't expect you to keep it when I tell you I had a baby a certain number of months later. The lie I'd first told was growing inside of me until it became impossible to hide. The news outed, father left the house without his hat, and my mother sat and cried on the sofa. I threw open my lap and ruined a dress for good. It took the birth for my sisters to begin speaking to me again, longer for my mother. Father became something like a disapproving uncle or an old neighbor who pops in to ask about everyone but me. It didn't matter. She was unexpected and she was a perfectly healthy baby, the finest thing I'd ever been responsible for, at least partly. Like a doll, I used to think, she hardly fussed. I took her for a stroll in the park near our house one day, not long after we'd first met. I left without telling my mother, even though she said it looked like rain. We lay on a blanket in the grass, my fingers walking down her doughy arms. I thought of nothing else, not the rest of the today, not tomorrow. I must have dozed because the rain startled me and I ran home, in through the back door off the kitchen, my sweater still pulled up over my head. My mother greeted me with this horrified look, her hands buried in a bowl of ground meat. Do you not have her, she said. We sprinted back to the park, me sobbing, and my mother yelling at me to shut up. I had only forgotten, I said, again and again, but even I wasn't totally convinced. I remember running home in the rain and thinking about you specifically while I did it. Was I that stupid, that villainous? Had I really treated you like a doll, leaving you on the stairs, under the bed, out in the rain? We reached the spot in the park and there you were. And if your clothes hadn't been pasted to your skin and you hadn't been, hadn't been screaming and I didn't feel like someone had wrapped something around my throat, I might have kicked harder against what was to happen next. My mother scooped you up and slid you inside her coat, unbuttoning her sweater and pressing you against her skin. Then she ran home. I didn't follow but collapsed to the ground and watched you both disappear across the grass, around the corner and down the street. It got dark and sometime later, one of my sisters and Kate one of my sisters came and walked me home, where you were already being divided like the babe in Solomon's court. This was supposed to remain untold, Winnie, something we all decided years ago. Balancing on top of that promise has been the easiest and the hardest thing I've ever done, and now I've fallen off of it. That I've fallen off of it, I'm not sure why I feel so relieved. I'll write you again soon, if you'll let me. There's just one little letter left. June 1st, 1964. Winnie, congratulations. Your mother tells me you're engaged. 
His name is Alvin, she reminded me, more than once, and I should be more polite. I will try, Winnie. I hope your Texan, Alvin, is the Gilbert Blythe to your Anne Shirley, honestly and truly. While I was surprised about your engagement, I was more shocked when your mother said nothing about my confession. I can only assume you didn't tell her, which is, I suppose, the best for everyone. And now that I mention it, I hope you'll consider forgetting the whole pathetic account. In the end, it doesn't change how we breathe. I'm still sitting here writing you letters and you're still coming into your own at university. I know asking you to disremember a story is probably a futile assignment. Would you forget your own name? Can you keep the cat from scratching at the door? Forgive yourself for leaving your baby out in the rain. There are so few moments anymore where I don't consider an alternate universe where I'd taken two steps to bend down, scoop you up, and onto my chest before walking home. Our lives are so easily bent by the weight of happenstance. Sitting too long in the sun, a poor night's sleep, daydreaming, a burning need to prove someone wrong. Tiny acts with sometimes brutal reactions. I'm reminded of the time the cat limped inside with a bloody foot and how for years I'd discover a dried red paw print whenever I slept or whenever I swept under my dresser or the hutch that belonged to your great grandmother. I'll visit you next month before you leave for school again. I pray you'll see me as you always have, if you're able, as your dear aunt who can't hardly move but out of love for our dear, dear Winnie Colette. Thanks. Thank you, Joel. That was awesome. It's fantastic. And I guess we'll open it up to some questions at this point in time for about 10 minutes if you guys want to throw some out there. But uh, you did mention something to begin with that this sort of brought you back to like that baseline story. Or what I'm curious about that as well as maybe the one-sided sort of epistolary story, that letter writing to a person out there. Mm. And, it's almost like therapy, I suppose, for this character. And what's satisfying about that as a storyteller? Well, it's easier. Well, <laughs> it felt easier to begin with, although when you think about it, I guess um, it requires you to do a lot more. Um, so it's probably not um, easier. It, it, was, it was probably a misconception on my part. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think I was always attracted to that. I, I, I grew up, I mean, uh, from uh, um, um, letters back and forth, even uh, fictional letters back and forth. Um, I, I grew up in a, a pretty religious household, and so um, uh, the screw tape letters, you know, C.S. Lewis, and I, I, I remember um, really digging those and a bunch of other, um, uh, I don't know, a lot of epistolary uh, kind of stories when I was a kid. There's something attractive about that. And maybe it's because it's, um, it's kind of a dying form too, you know? It's not, I mean, emails are still, that, it's, it's, that feels unfair to say that because emails are still doing that same thing, but there's something about the physical, about receiving something in the mail, obviously. People love that for good reason, so. Yeah, but also I suppose like putting something down before that other person gets to read it, it's like your story, and I think that comes through in your piece really well. I mean, the narrator's story is, exclusively hers, though she's writing to somebody who's mm -hmm. also becomes a character through her, you know, I suppose, making comments about her, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, I suppose did that actually give you kind of like carte blanche to create a, a more dynamic character that she's just on stage, like able to like speak to us? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. The um, well, well the, the the character of Winnie is obviously all filtered. I mean, extremely filtered through another character, through her, um, through her aunt, who's actually her mother, um, which I feel like makes sense. It's like, well, she would be filtered. I mean, she's gonna paint her as this wonderful being um, who's so smart and bookish, you know. Um, but but then also too in letters. I think um, the same way with first person, but for some reason more just with, with um, writing them as letters. Um, it allowed me to write in that really bookish way, <laughs> which is not like most of my stuff at all. This is very, very different than most of my stuff. Um, it's not, I don't think it's very bookish, um, but, but I was able to, to really give a, a certain voice to it. I have a couple other questions, but I won't ask them. I'll let you guys ask questions. Somebody else. Right here. Yeah. How, how do you express your, your passion with everything? Like, I, passion. You, you really get into the sense of it's, it's, how do you overcome that just all of a sudden just uh, you know, on stage being struck with the whole situation? So, so what is the passion of the story? How does it, I suppose, have, where have his genesis? Yes. Oh. <laughs> a woman well, yes, in the 60s, very nice. Uh, yeah, an older woman from the, in the 60s. Um, well, not, not saying that. No. Yeah, no, I, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, I, I think, um, I think to a certain degree, I mean, because it's not, not that it's a, it's a thankless endeavor, you know, writing by any means, but you go after such small carrots writing, you know, in terms of publishing, um, you know, for you know, for, for for little pieces like like that and everything, and it feels so great. And I, I think t to do that and to continue to to do that, you um, you kind of have to be in love with what you write. You know, you have to really love it a lot. You have to love the stories. But then, um, for me, a big part of it, and I think it's maybe it's different for other people, but but for me, it's very much about tapping into the, to a voice. That's very much like. Um, I, I feel like a story for me really comes alive when I actually have tapped into a voice and I feel like I know who this character is um, and it feels very, very near and dear to me. Because, I mean, when you were reading, I felt the emotion. Yeah. I felt the emotion of the whole situation. Yeah. Okay, thank you, yeah. I felt a little bit, I, I, was, I was at a reading, um, I, I introduced someone at a reading uh, before and he was, um, it was really odd. He was like overcome with emotion and he was like silent for like two minutes. And he was really surprised about it, but it was like, wow, that's like, like I, I always talk, you know, it's like I'm talking about like being in love with something, but this guy apparently is like in love with something that he like lost, you know, and I'm like, apparently he knows true love. Um, from a literature standpoint, I don't mean, you know, from, I don't mean in relationships, so, but, but thank you, yeah. Reader can feel that, so I feel like when you actually have that emotion that you brought to it and, um, We've all heard great readers kind of transcend, you know, instead of being in front of people, being a totally different character, but actually be able to connect with their own story well enough to just blow people away, hopefully. So, other questions out there for Mr. Joel? Anybody? Yes, in the back there, Lacey. What came first, the epistolary form idea, or what was the last part? Or the content, the character, the story? Right. 
Um, oh, that's tough. Um, I think it started, I mean, I really think it started as one letter, and, and, um, and I just started um, tapping into this voice that I really liked. And at first I was really trying to pull back on it because it felt like, again, it felt like this was the type of, it felt like I was like, oh, Anne of Green Gables or something like that. It was like Anne to, um, to Diana or something like that. I don't know, it was like a little bit, it felt a little bit silly. But, um, but then it was like, well, you know, if it's set in a specific time, um, um, and then this is who the character is, and these are the things surrounding her, and this is why this is why the voice this is why it's her voice. Um, so it started as one letter, but it was really hand in hand with the voice. Um, I will say generally, uh, for me, uh, I I usually know exactly what note I want to hit at the very end. I know what note I want to hit, and I know what I want to feel. But then I know what I hope other people kind of feel at the end of it. So I know generally the scene or the image that I want to end on, and then I know where I, I generally know where I want to start, although, although the start of a story I think is just as difficult as the end of it. Um, and then it's filling in all the middle part, which is like the important part, so. Um, yeah. One more, anybody? I see, yes, a hand. Sort of the tenor of misunderstanding in the narrator's voice, if you guys didn't hear that, but yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you say misunderstanding, and I think that's a um, that's a good word for. It. I always I tend to say loneliness. It's like there's a lot of loneliness. There's a there's definitely a thread of loneliness that tends to run um, through my work, which is weird. I don't feel like a I don't feel like a, a particularly lo lonely person, um, I, you know, um, or or I shouldn't be. <laughs> By any means, I shouldn't be a lonely person. But I talk about that sometimes in other uh, other stories, which. Um, which no one wants to publish, but these other stories um, with this character who talks about manufactured discontent, because I feel like that's a very human thing about, um, we feel discontent, um, we manufacture discontent even though there's no reason for us to be doing that, why are we, why are we artificially doing that? Um, um, I mean, I think it's definitely something that you, you know, like for me, you know, it's it's stuff from it's it's stuff from from how you you grew up, and for, for me, I think it was separating myself to a certain degree when I was younger. Um, I it's funny as I've gotten older, I always thought people stepped back from me, like my father stepped back from me and everything, and it's like, why don't you have any sort of relationship with me or whatever, or, or things like that, you know? We have one now, it's you know, but. But then I realized over time it was because I did so much of that. Like I stepped back so much where I just, um, you know, um, read in the closet and, you know, <laughs> things like that. These stupid, you know, like, like uh, um, planting seeds of manufactured discontent, you know, <laughs> for them to grow later and, and turn into wonderful stories, you know, so. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's still, it still is definitely, there's pieces of that in, the, in, in, in my past, so. Nice, well thank you guys so much, and thank yeah. you Joel, and. Thank you. <laughs> and you can uh, order the moth online. You can also go to the Hooch, the Chattahoochee Review site, and actually find his award-winning story about two brothers who do some stuff, so. We'll just say that, yes. They have like an interesting relationship. It, um, it's a great story, and also, Joel's a fantastic writer. He kind of talks himself down. Sir, you're bound for fame. You won money from the Chattahoochee Review. You're a professional, so you're good. <laughs>
Okay, everybody, we're ready for the second half of Campfire 2015, installment number two. Our next reader, Matthew R.K. Haynes, is also our first repeat Campfire author. He was brought back by popular demand. Polly, in particular, was like, bring that guy back because he's an amazing reader, one of my very best friends in the world, and a great writer. We've run this, I mentioned it last year if you were here for this, but I, this salon that was at the Gamekeeper until the Gamekeeper became not the Gamekeeper anymore. It's sad. In the old days, we used to sit around and like smoke cigarettes and pass poems and stories back and forth. Matthew was one of those people with Carrie Seymour, Matt Mormon, Chad, all kinds of people, Lori um, Chastain as well. And it's so cool to have seen what Matthew has done. He has a brand new novel that's out called Friday that's for sale over here. There's a couple copies left. I think three or four have already sold. He'd be happy to sign them. But he's also working on this amazing collection called Blue Hawaii. And um, he is half Hawaiian and has, for a long time since I've known him, really wanted, about, sort of wanted to write about this kind of the CD underside of sort of like what people consider to be a beautiful touristy place. And um, he can explain it better than I can. But I would just say that in reading the stories that I have and hearing him read last year, um, it's, it's pretty remarkable stuff. So I will give you the rundown on his credentials. Matthew R.K. Haynes is a writer living in Butte, Montana. Sadly enough now, he's moved back there. But he may grace us with his presence in Boise once more as a resident, but he was a State of Idaho Writing Fellow in 2010, named Honors Professor of the Year in 2005 and 2011. He earned his MA in Fiction and MFA in Creative Nonfiction from Boise State University. His first novel, Moving Towards Home, was published in 1999. Subsequently, his work has appeared in several anthologies and journals, including Soma Literary Journal, Hawaii, a weird spelling that I maybe pronounced right, but Native Literatures, Fringe, and Yellow Medicine Review. He has been a finalist for the Faulkner Award in Nonfiction and Writer's Digest Award in Fiction. His collection of multi-genre writing titled Shall We, Shall we Not Go Missing has been chosen for the Wayne Kumalai Westlake, Westlake Monogram Series and is forthcoming from Kalani Press his first novel, Friday, or his novel, Friday, his second or third novel, Friday, is recently out with Anaphora Literary Press, right over there, available. So, without further ado, Mr. Matthew R.K. Haynes, coming in. Hi, oh, um, yeah, so, thanks, uh, Modern, and everything else that went into Having me here again tonight, I, again, tonight being the again. Sorry, I'm like thinking about all sorts of words and it's driving me crazy. Um, the reason is, is because um, I was going to read <clears throat> this uh, new story I'd written and then three hours ago decided not to read it. Um, so I pulled out this other story <laughs> and I looked at it and I was like, ooh, you gotta change that one and that one. Um, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm working on this new collection that Christian mentioned, and it's called Blue Hawaii. Um, strangely, I just found out I'm not half Hawaiian. What the hell? 
Like, I did that stupid 23andMe thing, and I spit in the little thing and sent it off, and two weeks later, they were like, by the way, you're 67% Irish. <laughs> and I was like, that explains my drinking problem. Uh, <laughs> but 67% Irish. <laughs> Um, I'm actually only 18% Polynesian. Um, and I told my mom, and she's like, those stupid things lie. Because <laughs> she's Hawaiian. Um, yeah, and she wants to believe, no, that she's like 100% Hawaiian. So she's not, I know. I just ruined her life. Um, so I'm working on this collection called Blue Hawaii because as Christian explained, I, I'm trying to look at, I've lived in Hawaii several times and, and grew up there part-time. Um, and, you know, it's this place that people go because it's like Hawaii and it's supposed to be beautiful and amazing and you feel really good. Um, unless you're a really poor local person, um, then you don't feel very good sometimes. And sometimes you do meth. Um, and sometimes really bad things happen. Um, and sometimes you fall in love and everything's really great and you're still poor and everything's really great. Um, so I'm trying to explore those things. Um, the genesis for this collection is a story called One of Those Times and... Um, I'm gonna read that tonight, which I, I don't think I've read before. Um, and they're not locals. Um, I'm gonna read two pieces. One that's a, just a short story, not super long. And then I'm gonna read a short short. In this collection, I tend to write a lot of uh, short shorts or flash fiction, um, just because it seems appropriate for certain characters. But also in the collection, all the stories connect with each other. So That just made me feel drunk. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I swear, Zs. Um, but um, I, um, in this collection, so all the stories connect with each other. For instance, um, last time, I think, I read a story um, about this woman who has cancer and moves to Hawaii. And she meets this guy, even though she has a fiancé on the mainland. And she, you know, gets with him a lot and smokes some weed um, and sees the ocean and then goes back home because... She just wants to like kind of not do that for a while. Um, the connective story is then the guy who she was kind of getting with in Hawaii, Gary, he tells his own story. So in the collection, all the stories connect in that way. Um, I guess asynchronously. So <coughs> anyways, um, this is the Genesis story of the entire collection. And it's called One of Those Times. Renewing bows are for sissies she thought as she stood in her mother-in-law's living room with a veil hiding her face. She couldn't really see Dan, but only sense his proximity by the strength of his cologne. Some new brand, she thought. Nothing she bought him. She liked the polo he always worn. She liked the memories of that scent, of the first time they kissed from the bottom of the escalator to the top, one full kiss. But now he was trying to be young again, so his medicine cabinet was filled with black code and angel and DKNY, bottles that were pretty and expensive. He smelled like men half his age. It was probably because of his father, Marty, 60 years old and getting calf implants, and wearing Kenneth, Kenneth Cole stretch cotton t-shirts and those hybrid athletic dress shoes. Genetics, she thought. I must smile, she'd always been reminding herself, around Dan, around her in-laws. But with the veil so thick across her face, she wondered if they could, if they could see her smile. She wondered why her face was covered and why she had agreed to the silly ceremony. 
She imagined herself ripping the veil from her hair, kissing Dan one last time with her hands pulling at the sides of his face, giving the finger to the first row of family, and lighting out of that house, storming down the street, removing her heels and dress and slip and panties and bra and moving into the twilight. I must smile. Dan spoke to her, spoke vows, a renewal. She heard them intermittently, promised to love, uphold, trust, take care of, not speak ill of. She smiled a bit, and for real this time, she thought, that sounds like the worst thing that a person can do. If I don't speak ill, I will continue to do nothing just like now. I will forever be standing in a veil with a hideous man that I once loved that no longer makes sense to me. Honey, Dan said, and then with concern, honey. She didn't respond because she was still thinking about the unfathomable things that people think about when they know they are walking a plank. Charlotte? She came to him without hesitation, recited her vows that she'd practiced at the grocery store, walking the aisles with a push basket in search of only one thing, whipped cream. Renewing their vows on Thanksgiving was his idea. I mean, really, Charlotte, we can give thanks for the past 15 years. What better time? She just smiled when he said that. And then he had to ask, come on, like a puppy dog, she thought. What do you think? And she replied, that's a perfect idea. Her recitation was flowing and simple, like a pretty white dress without fringe or splash. More words, and then her veil lifted, and there was the face of the man, she said, with these vows, I looked the next 15 years of passion. And she wasn't saying that the past 15 years had been passionate, and she hoped that everyone understood that. She was looking forward with ex expectation, desire for the 15 years of passion. In that sense, she thought that maybe this whole renewal of vowels might act like a renewal of life. That because of this simple, silly, ugly living room scene, they might be launched into a real sense of matrimony, or a connection that might lead to some testimony of 15 years of passion. Either way, she didn't want to end up dead before being buried. You looked so, so, so gorgeous, Nancy said. Thank you, Nancy. I so appreciate a mother-in-law. Charlotte, she scolded, all these years and I still have to tell you, call me Nance. I know, I'm sorry, Charlotte said. Oh, honey, your hair's crooked. There are bobby pins in the upstairs bathroom in the vanity. Okay, Charlotte said, wondering if bobby pins were sharp enough to puncture the skin and sever the veins in her wrist. <laughs> and there's spray right there on the counter. Nancy picked up Charlotte's hair for a second, rested her hands on her shoulders, adjusted the seams and ran the dress lines at Charlotte's sides to her hips and turned away with a pat, a pat that surely said, oh honey, Dan's don't make passes at Char's with fat asses. Thanks, Nance. This is me, Charlotte thought. The face in the mirror was still tight, a few lines around the eyes and mouth, not, um, but nothing too aged. Her cheeks and brows still had lift. Her throat, while somewhat slack, was smooth and resisted jiggle when she shook her head. She looked like her mother in the picture that hung above the mantel, one of those black and whites, pre-wedding, in a studio with a fake nature background, her head tilted just a bit to the left, her half-smile. Charlotte's father had it enlarged and erected after she died. It replaced an expensive vase, which moved to the recreation room. When you sat on the couch, you faced the portrait. It was really all you could see at three feet, and two and a half, three feet long and two and a half feet wide. Charlotte remembered days when he would sit with a cup of tea and just stare. 
smiles, and then tears. Never audible conversations, but she knew there was a chat going on in his head. Later on, in high school, the portrait became something of an icon. On Easter, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, Charlotte and her older brother Benjamin and their father would stand before the mantle and offer respect, remembrance, and everlasting love. On Mother's Day, they had to dress up for the ceremony. And on New Year's Eve at midnight, their father expected to be left alone with their mother. It was hard to pass the portrait without acknowledging her mother's post-existence. And that's how he wanted it, she thought. As sweet as it seemed, it certainly left its unhealthy mark. Charlotte would have, would have been out of her marriage in the first five years if it hadn't been for her father. The first time things went incredibly sour, she went to him for advice. He told her, sitting on that same couch, occasionally glancing at that same portrait, that she should tough it out. Get through it, he would say. You never know how long you've got. Make every day you spend with him the best of your life. And how could she deny such sage wisdom coming from a man who would move mountains to have his wife back and consequently would spend his remaining days in love with her memory? She didn't. She continued to live the relationship. Three years later, in the midst of having a brief affair, she approached her father a second time. Charlotte divulged her extramarital life and asked her father, I should tell him, right? I mean, I should, I should just leave him. This is over, right? He pulled her out of the living room as if what he had to say would be too explicit for her dead mother's portrait's ears. In the kitchen, with a garbled throat, he told her to never let Dan know. These sorts of things can kill a man, he said. He told her to stay. That's the least he deserves from you. Though she heeded his advice, it was the last time that Charlotte sought out her father's wisdom. And she wondered then if her father had done the same thing to her mother and she died before he ever had the chance to make amends. Or perhaps he did tell her and she never forgave him. But through it all he stayed and in the end was left to a portrait, nothing but an image of what had been at one moment, maybe the last good thing to remember. After 10 years, it just became easier to stay with Dan. Lifestyle, a house, cars, bills. She blamed her father for this and she blamed her mother a little bit too. Downstairs, people were still talking about their weddings and how beautiful they were, or about their renewal and how it put a new polish on a dull marriage. They talked about children and asked Dan when he and Charlotte were going to get around to it. Never, she thought, children make people stupid. When she caught Dan alone in the laundry room where he was trying to oxyclean a stain from his tucked shirt, she asked him why people never talk about the news or what's happening with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and shit like this. It's always what they did or wish they had done or didn't do and damn, this shit is driving me crazy. Dan looked at his watch, grabbed her shoulders, just four more hours, baby, and we're out of there, out of here. He kissed her. I'll repack again, she said. She breathes into the moment. She takes in the heat and the humidity and smell of sweet and stench. This is the right mix, she thinks. Gardenia and frangipani trees line the sidewalk, their fragrance only apparent at close proximity. But as she scans the streets past the airport, the locals look corroded, half awake, half dead, like cheap rental cars, salt rusting at the edges but still running, like her perhaps. Maybe Hawaii is where people come to decompose, she thinks. The seven miles from the airport to Kona is intoxicating, otherworldly. Life forces itself from cinders, lava flows thousands of year old, years old, and from that grow cacti and sagebrush, palm trees, and naupaka. 
Hear that, Dan says to her, that's the ocean. When she focuses, she can hear the swell and crash of waves to the west. But the coastline is so far away, Charlotte says. It happens this time of year, Dan says, the autumn storms growing in the north, sending the waves south. Dan puts his hand on her leg. They're big enough to surf, baby. She listens to the movement of the ocean mixing with the traffic. She wants so badly to cup his hand with her own, but she's become too used to not. Resentment requires withdrawal, she thinks. She holds her breath. Dan moves his hand back to the steering wheel. As she exhales, she looks inland to Mauna Kea, rising 14,000 feet. Already there is a bit of snow dolloping the top. She looks back to the ocean and then back to the volcano, and she sees that she is in the middle and how the road is a ribbon cut through the dark, jagged uh-uh. How do you think they did it, she says. What's that? How did they get all those natives to the ocean? I mean, they didn't fly. She imagines for a moment the sky silhouetted with hundreds of dark skins, feathered red and orange cloaks kicking behind them, carrying their weight thousands of acres to the cusp of what is seen and unseen. They probably went around, Dan says. Charlotte stares at the right side of Dan's face, hairline fractures age out from behind his sunglasses. His skin has begun to darken in places, and hair has begun its erratic genesis from his cheekbone, the top of his ear, his temple. Of course they would have gone around, she thinks. They would have walked and walked and walked. They would have waited for something better. She doesn't think she would have made it. She would have tried to fly. They stay cheap at the King Kamehameha Hotel. This is Dan again. This is his way. This is how he does things. According to the brochure, it sits adjacent, adjacent to the Ahuena Hayao, a temple built to Lono, the god of peace and prosperity. It is seaside and climbs 20 stories. The hotel doesn't look so cheap, she thinks, but at check-in, she hears the $59 rate, and when they get to the room, she sees the $59 rate. She thinks about praying. Is this an oil stain, she asks, kneeling down on the carpet, studying its girth, its area larger than a turkey. I'm not sure, Dan says, inspecting only for a moment before pulling open the sliding glass door to the balcony and stepping out. Ah, here we go, babe. Charlotte is still wondering at the stain and why, if it is oil, it is in this room. And what could have happened for someone to bring in motor oil? Charlotte, come here, he says. And she joins Dan on the patio. She looks to the ocean, miles of water rounding at the horizon because it's the morning, the air is still cool, but she can feel the sun taking over. Dan moves behind her and wraps her with his arms. His chin rests on her head and she lets herself undo. She snuggles in just a little bit more and works her arms up under his so they're across her chest. And it's like an ad, she thinks, for a hotel. This is what people do when they go out onto balconies in Hawaii. They stand just like this. She stays wrapped inside him, and she eventually feels his erection forming, and she arcs her back a bit and moves into it. And as if they were 20 again, Dan undoes his, her shorts and pulls down his pants and slips her hands, his hands under her shirt, cups her breasts. Charlotte holds onto the balcony and fixes her sight on the horizon, continuing to round and soften until she closes her eyes. Was that all I needed, she says to herself in the shower. She takes pleasure in washing her hair even though the shampoo is pert, even though the water is soft and film sits on her skin. She doesn't wash certain parts of her body because she wants to remember the balcony a bit longer. Is that all that was missing for all of these years? The door opens and Dan asks in. 
Charlotte smiles and welcomes him saying, Aloha. And he kisses her and she says, Mahalo. And they go about that in the manner for 20 minutes until she fixes her sight on the way the soft water catches itself on the white bath tile and she closes her eyes again. Jameson's by the sea is a quaint restaurant that Dan heard about from a friend. It is quaint, Charlotte thinks, and she feels very surprised because quaint doesn't hap seem to happen that much anymore. They eat fish and have white wine and eat dessert, which they rarely do. The, th the sun has set, but the concrete and lava rock sitting seaside still radiate warmth. And the ocean swell has in it a certain sound of sun as it crests and crashes. And by the silly candlelight that illuminates the patio table, Dan doesn't look so bad to her. He tells her a story that she knows she's heard before, but she's not listening, so she can't be certain. None of that matters right now. All she can see is him as he used to be. The pin orange of the setting sun lights his face a bit, and he seems fresh. Charlotte wonders if this is how it happens. At some point, life turns to monotony and patterns and excuses until you go to Hawaii and see the sun on someone's face. Maybe that is what Hawaii is for, to remember that people can still be beautiful. Yep, I just made a little thing right there and I'm reading it to myself. <laughs> um, <clears throat> she remembers seeing commercials and ads where families are submerged with headgear, breathing through plastic tubes so close to turtles and clownfish and sometimes a small shark. You can see that they are smiling because their cheeks are pushed back and lips upcurled from the snorkel. They are always blonde and thin and so clearly a family. They'd gone for her father's funeral, choosing to stay in a hotel because it was too empty at the home, and she feared that if she sat down even once to take stock of her mother's picture, she'd get stuck and end up like her father, a pious follower of a notion. Hours before the processional, she and Dan were sitting on the bed drinking Tanqueray travel bottles because they were still in their 30s. Charlotte wearing her black evening dress that she'd wear when they went out for dinner and drinks and dancing, the dress that made Dan horny, and they'd end up doing it in a bathroom or elevator or car. Dan never had black then. He wore navy blue slacks with gray sports coat. She wasn't really watching television, just looking, and an ad came on for the Caribbean. And blonde people were snorkeling, and she said, I want to do that before I die. So she can't believe that Dan remembered that she'd wanted to snorkel, and she is giddy when he rents a yellow kayak and they leave the dock with a small cooler of beer. Charlotte's wearing her first two-piece in a long time. Dan rows them across the Kealakekua Bay to Captain Cook Monument, a very small spot of land with a 25-foot marble obelisk jutting above the ocean. After Cook was killed by angry natives, his fellow countrymen erected the monument. Charlotte stares at its whiteness and wonders how long things are really meant to last. These islands, this monument, a person's generosity, her love. She tilts her head to the sun and takes a deep breath and plays the moments of her life to this point. Sex on a swing set at 16 with Carl Keller. Vomiting at graduation. A lesbian affair in college. A miscarriage from an unknown father. First real job as a real estate secretary. Meeting Dan. Sex. Romance, love, trips, a home, comfort, solitude. Charlotte realizes that her life has come to be defined by general concepts. 
there are no more moments, except for this one, the time that they went to Hawaii after their vow renewal ceremony and refound love and went snorkeling. Dan drops anchor, and she watches as he dons his breather in flippers. Coming, he asks, and she smiles like she has a snorkel in her mouth. In a minute, he jumps and disappears. Charlotte watches his bubbles surface like soft, small marbles until he reappears 10 feet away. He looks at her, and she straightens her back, waving. He throws her a kiss and is gone again. Dan moves further out. She looks back at the volcano rising and the ocean she is in and scans what she can see in between, and she can find nothing in that space. She pulls the anchor and waits. This is the time I decided to leave, she thinks, because things are good again, because nothing can stay this sweet. She remembers thinking when her father died, imagining him growing ever more feeble in front of that portrait, that true choices are rarely made with foresight. They happen in the blink of an eye, like reaching for a tipping cup of coffee while driving. So she thinks the choice she must make must be without planning, where what must happen happens and so she paddles back to shore. Thanks. Um, so, I'm lonely. No, <laughs> um, it sounds like it though. Um, so <laughs> I was just thinking how you had Joel said that like, no, like I'm not lonely. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm really not. Um, that's just the story in my head. Um, so uh, this really short, short piece that I'm going to read um, is off of a different story um, uh, that I read actually here in Butte a while back um, at Ghosts and Projectors in Hyde Park. And it's a story... Oh my gosh, I just actually lied. I totally made that up. I did not do that at all. It's a story <laughs> that I was going to read. Wow, totally made that up. Um, and it is about um, a set of twins <laughs> that I've never read. Um, and a set of twins who are born in Hawaii and they're born to an affluent family. Um, uh, a Hawaiian, uh, well, half Hawaiian-ish, 67% Irish family. Um, and... They're born, and they're born into this really affluent family and go to Punahou, which is a preparatory school, a very, very expensive preparatory school in, in Honolulu. Um, and they don't see the, um, the degradation of impoverished local Hawaii um, and kind of look down on it when they think about it. And they're just raised differently. Um, and, um, and they're kind of crazy because they're wealthy. Like crazy in that way that like, they can't connect with things. And that's a huge generalization I just made, and I know that. Um, standing by right now <laughs> for that story. Um, and they go in different directions and they go crazy in their own ways. Um, but one of the things they're trying to, I'm trying to express, because I tend to write idea-driven stories, not necessarily plot-driven stories, um, is that they're trying to understand what it means to, uh, one of them is trying to understand what it means to, um, to have something because their parents are total assholes. And like, what does it mean to have something? And then what does it mean to want something more than just having it and realizing that the step after having is to consume, which means destruction. So having someone completely means destroying them is what one of the characters comes to. 
Um, and the other one is thinking about what is the point of all of any of this at all, especially when your parents are assholes. Um, and she discovers that maybe there isn't. So that's what they're trying to grapple with, super happy stuff. And um, so the dad who in that story pieces out on page one, um, um, goes for another lady. Um, this is his story and it's very, very short, 800 words because I feel like it just needs to be 800 words because of his personality or whatever, his character. Um, so it's in uh, future tense, um, <laughs> which sounds really weird. And it's called, The Things I Do Will Break Your Heart. I will marry you because I love you at the time. You'll wear that black linen caftan that you call your house coat, the one you'll buy in Marrakesh because you'll think it makes you look simple and that will make me think you are strange and funny because you were anything but simple. Yet years later, it will make me think you are the same as you have always been. And I know some men find that comforting, but I will not be that kind of man. Still, we will have two beautiful daughters, and things will be fine for a while because time is like that, always fine for a while. The first woman I'll screw won't make the same poached eggs as you each morning. In fact, she won't make eggs at all. We'll go out for breakfast, Truthfully, we'll go out for brunch, and we'll have bellinis, and that will be hotter than her little ass. But not just that. It will be the way she won't care about how her feet have blackened from walking the asphalt to the pier, doing cartwheels on the beach. And it won't be because you never did that. It'll be because she'll do that when I'm 35, when I think I need it. And then I will leave her. And then I will leave you, and I will leave our girls, but not abandon them, and maybe that's the same thing, but I won't think so. I'll visit from time to time, and I'll send them cards, and then I won't. The second woman I'll screw won't make the bed, and that will be refreshing, because there will be no illusion that tomorrow won't be the same as yesterday. I won't want the pretend of yesterday. I won't want what will already have been discovered, or what will already have been prepared, as if I have been, will have been something you could have known. The second will have my baby and will call him Jacob, not because I care for that name, but because it is the name of her grandfather. I'll tell you about Jacob once we're back together, when you have forgiven me, and I have made promises that I can't be sure I'll keep. Our girls will tell me you have left the country, that you're flitting around Europe, and I'll imagine that you're screwing some guy named Giovanni or Piero. I'll leave the second and the kid, and I'll do cocaine and screw every girl I can, and then I'll lose my job, and then I'll go to a counselor for three weeks until she helps me understand that I'm an asshole, and then I'll screw her too, and then I'll leave her, and then I'll search for you on Facebook, roam Craigslist, wondering if you are that woman looking for a tender man, and when I can't find you, I'll get straight and land another job. I'll work hard until hard work doesn't cut it, and I'll tell our girls, babies, Maybe you can't understand this yet, but boredom is a virus. Once it gets at you and you start thinking that you'll never feel good again, you will search for any kind of cure or what you think might be a cure, but there is no cure. There is only another thing to occupy your mind until the next thing comes along until you realize that it's all boredom and you have to pick which kind of bored you would rather be. I won't feel good all the time. I'll feel low. And when I'll have felt low enough, I'll come to your door and hope that you're home. 
I'll count one, two, three, four, five, and I won't think about the first or the second or the kid. I'll only be thinking about you, and I'll wait here until you answer. Wait here until I can't breathe. Promise. Thanks. One more time, that was amazing. Uh, Fucking amazing, really great. Thank you, Mr. Haynes, that was remarkable. And we'll open up to questions once again for a few here. Um, one of my, I guess my initial question would be, clearly it's sort of a, a puzzle, an amalgam, this collection you're putting together, but you do such a wonderful job of, I guess, distilling it down to the specific humans involved and their, you know, sort of baseline experience. How do you go about maybe choosing those humans? Like, what are the ones, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, natives, tourists, etc. What have you thought about? Is it just organic or is it something that you kind of make a little formula out of? Um, I think it's mostly organic. Um, eh, kind of slightly a formula, though. Um, so um, Robert Olmsted, um, I don't know if you've read Robert Olmsted, but he was one of my mentors when I was in um, school. And he was, like, super mean. Um, <laughs> he was. He was super mean. Um, but I learned a lot from him. And one of the things he said is that sometimes we keep coming back to certain stories um, or certain characters in our stories. And so part of it formulaically is that I like certain kinds of characters. Um, like, there are people that are bored a lot in a lot of my stories. <laughs> They're like, why am I so bored? And then they go do these things like, oh, leave their husbands um, or, you know, be really mean. Um, thanks, Robert Olmsted. Um, so I kind of keep coming back to that. And that I, I think, so I guess the formula is that I kind of have thematic, thematic things that I like to um, go back and forth to. But um, it's really, mostly it's um, organic. I find a character, well, for instance, um, um, one story I wrote, the one about, uh, I have this story about a, a guy um, who, who like this kid has this mom who's a total wreck and he takes the kid in for a night to take care of him. And because of that story came another story um, just because I liked a character that happened, that I happened to develop within that story. So yeah, I guess that would be called right. organic. And you do have a lot of, you know, you have a few tours. We've heard like kind of like, I suppose, outsider stories for Hawaii standards, right? Tonight. And last year you read more insider stories, I suppose. And so that mix, I suppose, how do you suppose the entire collection will come together with a balance between the two? Um, I think it'll be pretty um, like 60-60. I don't know. 67, 67. No, I really like the idea of uh, characters coming in from the mainland. Um, so uh, the story that I was going to read tonight that I didn't is actually those two girls, one of them leaves Hawaii and goes to the mainland. So it's this kind of transposition um, um, the arc that I, I, I do. Um, um, I just, I, I like it when people, I like that there's a mix because what you experience as a local, which I was for a while, is not the same as what you experience as a transplant or a tourist. And I think it's important to have all of that because there is this idea of Hawaii and then, so all of those stories are super sad, by the way. Um, that's why I call it Blue Hawaii. I'm not referring to Elvis in it. Um, 
at all, though he's super sad. Um, but yeah, no, they're just like, they're sad stories because I kind of find Hawaii sad. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we had two sad fiction writers tonight. So, Yay. Uh, but fantastically sad. And questions out there. Here. The difference between thirst and boredom, because there's boredom brought up directly, but thirst meaning... Right. Um, yeah, that's actually a huge theme I work with in the collection. Um, uh, the twin story, one of them is looking for purpose, which is thirst, and the other one is bored like her father and tries to consume. Um, and I think those are thirst and consumption are different things. One is a searching and one is a having, right? So I think the difference between right now in this moment, having just had a whiskey and a half a beer, okay, two whiskeys and a half a beer, I think the difference between thirst and, um, and boredom, um, so I'm just gonna say it. I don't, think, I don't know if there's much of a difference. Um, I think it's a very, very thin razor's edge that's a very bloody edge. I, I think that um, potentially thirst can come out of boredom and um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I'm just gonna say I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I think. Um, yeah, well, I, I kind of felt like the woman in your first reading was thirsty. Yeah. But it came off as boredom. But what she was, she was really lacking in her life, and searching for something else. So the so protagonist in the first story being thirsty for something and lacking is along with that thirst and that boredom kind of all blended together? Is yeah. that maybe yeah. close? I, I think, yeah, when, I think when you come down to it, one is like, I, I, I feel that boredom is nothing matters and thirst is everything matters. Um, so it's like, you know, that those are two di very different approaches of the same kind of thing. Like, oh yeah, everything matters, yeah. Oh, nothing matters. <laughs> you know, so I think that's what happens, maybe after two whiskeys and one beer. <laughs> no, but it puts good characters at risk emotionally and uh, clearly physically they're doing very, you know, sort of uh, things they wouldn't normally do, just leaving someone in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Probably not, but yeah. other questions? Mm -hmm. Anyone? <laughs> one final question, no? Yeah. Yes, question. Why do you write about Hawaii besides being 2% Hawaiian? <laughs> besides being not Hawaiian. Uh, so once I went to a luau and I thought it was super cool, so. <laughs> um, that was a serious question. No, though, no, it's it a serious like, question. It's a microcosm, like a I suppose, of you know, the world at large, it seems like, or a, a city, like Hawaii kind of operates as almost like a place a little, uh, you've talked about Juno Diaz as being an influence, like the DR and Dominican culture in the U.S. being somebody you wanted to sort of kind of emulate in this, uh, you know, new collection. Yeah. Um, 
Gosh, I guess if I'm going to be really, really honest, um, and only because I just had an essay come out in Hawaii Pacific Review, and essays are supposed to be honest, and now I'm trying to be honest. <laughs> um, I had an essay come out a long time ago called um, Call and Return, and the guess of the reason that I'm writing about Hawaii is that I really don't actually feel like I'm authentically Hawaiian. And that kind of hurts my feelings in a way, actually. To be honest, it really does. I'm just kind of like, oh, screw that, man. Like, hey, mom, you like totally raised me in this way. And I guess I am in that way. Um, and then I thought like I was less culturally Hawaiian and more just kind of like genetically Hawaiian, turns out, 23 and me. Um, I'm not. So <laughs> um, it all just, and I started writing it before the 23 and me thing. I don't want to like, I feel like I'm going to get sued um, by 23 and me. But no, I just, I feel like there's something dishonest that's taking place in the idea of something and that something is fundamentally the things that take place in and around the notion of Hawaii. And that irritates me in a way and I want to tell my sides, my stories of, of how that may not be true, I guess. Awesome. Well, how about one more round of applause for Joel Wayne Thanks and Matthew R.K. Haynes. And as we conclude this second installment of Campfire Stories here at The Modern, uh, I want to thank everybody. This is remarkable how many folks show up for storytelling. I was just talking to a former student over here. And he was just like, I, I've been wanting to find something like this. And I've been studying sort of that notion of like, the essential need to tell stories, and you guys are all here for that, and the amazing cocktails and food, too, of course, but uh, great, great storytelling. And we'll have more next month with Allison Green, who's out of Seattle, who is a, a nonfiction writer who um, actually, her memoir has a lot to do with following Richard Brodigan's trail um, and speaking about this part of the country, and she actually stayed at the modern with her partner and wrote a chapter all about that in Boise. And also our man Mitch Wieland, who teaches at Boise State and who has two novels available over there and has a brand new story in the Missouri Review just out this month. So um, we'll put more of that stuff on the Facebook. And I don't really do the tweeting as much, but we'll try to get the tweeting going. So I really, really appreciate you guys coming out tonight and thanks to these guys. So good job. This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>